Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at one of our worship services. Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at either 9 or 11. Well, good morning, church. Welcome to our live stream service this morning. I'm so excited to be with you and to be able to talk with you this morning. Before we get into God's word, I want to just share a few thoughts with you, a few items of importance. I want to thank you for your faithfulness in giving. And Pastor Allen wants to thank you for your faithfulness in giving, if you understand what I'm talking about. I also want to thank our technical team working behind the scenes to bring this time to you. There are a number of people faithfully week after week. In fact, uh, a number of them were here last night till about one in the morning. One of our live stream computers crashed. And so they were running around and fixing things up so we could come to you this morning. So I thank God for them and I hope you do also. I also want to tell you I miss you. And I can hardly wait to welcome you all back with open arms. I want to hug every single one of you. And uh, in this time of distancing and masks and so forth, I hope you long for, as I do, the opportunity to encourage one another and just be a, a blessing to one another. So we have no idea when we will be able to meet back together but I pray that it will be sooner than later. On another note, I want to share with you a thought about our message this morning and our return to teaching through 1 Corinthians. The idea of returning to some sense of normality. Everything has been disrupted. And I think if you are like me, you you're long for and are anxious about getting back to a more normal life. And so a few weeks ago, I decided rather than going on talking about the virus and offering different sorts of, of ministry uh, words and so forth, I thought that it would be good for us as a congregation to return to some sense of normality and return to our teaching of First Corinthians that we started last year. On another note, I want to share with you, we, we have lost some folks from our body. And uh, Jim Edwards passed this last week, and we love Miss Jim, certainly we loved him. And Randy Kupras also passed away. We miss Randy, just a, just a neat, neat man. And Robert Carson also went home to be with the Lord. Robert, for years, served alongside many of you in our children's ministry. Robert always, always had a smile on his face and always was praising the Lord. We'll miss them. One day we will be back together. Pray, if you would, for their families and for God's grace and comfort to be theirs in their time of loss. I want us to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. And I've entitled my message, Paul's Example. So read with me the, the chapter, if you will. Paul says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us? as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Who serves as a soldier 
at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes, who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk. Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us. Because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I've not used any of these rights. And I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am free from God's law, but, not, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in the race all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Jesus said that he came that we might know the truth, and the truth would, what? Make us free. He said also that if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Question is, free from what? And free for what? Free from sin, from its power, from its penalty, Freedom from the bondage to falsehood, from Satan. He says in another place that we have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's Son, whom he loves. Freedom from condemnation. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Freedom from judgment. Freedom from spiritual ignorance. Freedom from spiritual death. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, 
The Apostle Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a low yoke of slavery. There he's talking about being in bondage to the law and to legalism. In bondage to having to justify yourself. Freedom from, but also freedom to. Freedom to live a life that is full. A life that is abundant. And that's really what we all desire and hunger for. That's been built into us. And Christ has set us free from so that we may live a full life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 and 24, he says this. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Paul had planted the church in Corinth. And he spent 18 months with them, a year year and a half, teaching them the truth, the truth of being a Christian, being free from all these other dynamics to be able to live full, abundant lives that glorify the Lord. It's three years later now, and he's writing writing to them in response to some questions they have and as well, to address some problems that were going on in the Corinthian church. The issue we're addressing at this point in chapters 8 through 10 have to do with specifically their freedom, and more particularly, their, their, right, their, their right to eat meat sacrificed to idols. This was a, a big deal in their midst. They have been apparently claiming that they are free to eat meat sacrificed to idols if they like. Which ended up being, as he says in chapter 8, verse 9, a stumbling block to the weak. The issue is not that of offending someone in the church. It has to do with conduct that someone would emulate. Indeed, in this case, apparently being urged to emulate to his or her own harm in chapter 8 paul set out the limits of their christian freedom yes there are limits to our christian freedom limits that are determined by two things love and concern for the welfare of other believers look with me at verse 9 of chapter 8 he says be careful however that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in the idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. So clearly, he says, we have a limit to our freedoms, and those limits are determined by our love for our brothers and our concern for their welfare. Now in chapter 9, Paul sets out to illustrate. He uses himself as an example of limiting his own rights, limiting his liberty. He had many rights which he could claim, but he didn't claim those rights lest they turn out to be stumbling blocks to others or hindrances to the effectiveness of the gospel. In verse 1, Paul asks four rhetorical questions. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Four rhetorical questions. First one, am I not free? The Corinthians, taught by Paul about their freedom in Christ, made much of that freedom. So Paul says to them, in effect, I have no less freedom than you do, and I value my freedom no less than you do. But I value some things more. Am I not an apostle? Being an apostle 
would have set him in a very special position, certainly in a position of authority. And apparently there were some who questioned his authority and questioned his apostleship. So in the next two questions, he gives these verifications of his apostleship. So the third question, he lists the first verification of his apostleship. He was an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus. He says to them, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Now in the book of Acts in chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, gives the qualifications in effect for an apostle. You must have been, been an eyewitness of Jesus and his resurrection. Now while Paul was not one of the original 12 He had seen the resurrected Christ on three different occasions. Chapter 9, the account of his conversion, chapter 18, and chapter 22, when the Lord appears to him. His fourth question, and the second verification of his apostleship, was the Corinthian believers themselves. They were the result of, They were the fruit of his ministry efforts. The very fact that they existed. They were also the seal of his apostleship. Now, most of you know in the ancient world, seals were used to authenticate a letter or some merchandise. And a seal also kept things from being altered somehow. What was under the seal was guaranteed to be genuine. And the Corinthian church proved the genuineness of his apostleship. In verses 3 through 6, Paul now begins to defend his rights. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? First, his right to be supported financially by those to whom he ministers. The right to food, to money, and to whatever good things are appropriate. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 6, He says to the Galatians, anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructors. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul writes to Timothy. He says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church, well, are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. And the worker deserves his wages. Paul also says he has a right to take a believing wife along with him. The right to marry a Christian woman and to have her minister with him wherever he goes. He identifies the other apostles, apparently, who are married, the Lord's brothers. And even Cephas, Peter, was married. Now, it's possible that Paul was a widower at this point. Though he chose to be single, he says he had every right to be married. He also had the right to take a wife with him as he ministered and have her her supported right along with him. The point is this. There should be a generous attitude to support those involved in vocational ministry. Now, Paul and Barnabas had a right to material support. But did they insist on that right? No, they did not. They voluntarily supported themselves. Now, look at verse 7 with me. To further support his argument, he gives three illustrations to show that paying workers is a customary thing. Verse 7 of our text Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? 
who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk. So he makes his point through the use, again, of rhetorical questions, the answers to which should be obvious. No soldier serves at his own expense. He's provided everything needed to live and to fight effectively. The man who plants a vineyard shares in its fruits. Shepherds don't work for free either. They get at least some of the milk of the flock in payment. All three types of workers, Paul says, are paid for their work. It's the customary, right, and expected thing. Why should it not be true for God's workers as well? Even God's law teaches the principle. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, don't muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. Read with me verses 8 through 11. Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us. Because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If God intends for the ox to be paid for its work, how much more is he concerned that people be compensated for their work? In verse 10, he says, the plowman and he who threshes should be able to work in the hope of sharing in the harvest. Paul had every right to apply this principle to himself. If men working for men should be paid for their labor, surely men working for God should be paid for their work. Look with me now again at verse 11. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? So he's saying to us, material payment should be given for spiritual work. The Lord provides his own spiritual rewards, but his people are to provide material rewards. And generously, if you remember from 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul calls for double honor. In verse 12, Paul points out to the others, meaning probably Peter and Apollos. They had received, apparently, the support of the Corinthians. But as their founding pastor and apostle, he had more claim on their support than did the others. But he didn't use this right. He chose to waive his right to their support. Look with me at verse 12. If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. He chose to support himself, we know, as a tent maker from Acts chapter 18, verse 3. He could tell the Corinthians the same thing he told the Ephesians in Acts chapter 20. He says to the Ephesians, You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. Paying his own way was more was one means of not causing any hindrance to the gospel of Christ. He didn't want anyone, especially potential believers or new believers, to have any reason to think that he was preaching the gospel for selfish motives or that he was in the ministry for the money. Believe me, you're in the ministry, you're not doing it for the money, except, of course, if you are on television. Verse 13, he tells us that another reason for his right to be supported. Those who worked as priests in the temple were supported by the tithes and offerings of the people. He says, don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered at the altar? And then verse 14, 
He says, in the same way. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Paul said that he had the right to expect to be supported because the Lord commands his people to offer support to those who minister to them. But the Lord does not command those who minister to accept the support. And Paul didn't. He had the right as much as any and more than most. But for the sake of the gospel, for the brother's sake, and for love's sake, he gladly limited his liberty. He willingly waived his right. Verse 15. But I have not used any of these rights. And I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. He gives two reasons why he refused to accept material support. The first reason we find in verses 16 through 18. He didn't want to risk losing his reward for preaching the gospel without charge. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. Again, Paul did not want to risk losing his reward for preaching the gospel without charge. The second reason, he wanted absolutely nothing to hinder his preaching and reaching the lost with the gospel. We see that in verses 19 through 27. But back up in verse 15, he had just given several reasons why he had the right to be supported, but he says, I have not used any of these rights. And he doesn't want the Corinthians to think he's open to changing his mind. He didn't want them to think that he was hoping, despite his protest, they would begin to pay him. He wants to face those opposing him with the boast that he is unselfishly serving them and the Lord in the gospel. This was Paul's way. In fact, he said to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, he says to them, says to them this. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked day and night in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. And in 2 Thessalonians, he says the same thing in chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Now, Paul did receive support. He received the support from the Macedonian churches, if you recall. And Thessalonica was amongst those Macedonian churches. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he writes this. He tells us, We get there. Verses 8 and 9. I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I've kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. And Paul says in verse 15 of our passage that he would rather die than have anyone think he was preaching 
for money. In verse 16, as we continue through our passage, he says that when he preaches the gospel, he cannot boast. He had absolutely nothing to do with the content of the gospel, with the giving of the gospel, nor would he boast in his commitment or his ability in preaching the gospel. He was compelled in all these ways. Look with me again at verse 16. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I'm compelled to preach. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Like Jeremiah, Paul could try to stop preaching, but could not. He was compelled. Jeremiah was frustrated and despondent because of rejection and ridicule. And he tried to stop preaching, but he couldn't. Listen to his testimony. But if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Paul was compelled to preach. And he says, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Preaching the gospel is not something he chose to do. It was something he must do. And we, he says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Probably referring to God's discipline and or judgment if he should fail. His reward is the boasting that he can make before them that he is preaching to them without charge and not making use of his rights as a gospel minister. Paul wants to prove to the Corinthians the genuineness of his ministry. Then verse 19, going beyond his rights to financial support, Paul next describes the other areas of his life in which he has given up his right, his right to freedom in order to win more to Christ. This is his primary purpose. What's our primary purpose? Look with me at verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. He was willing to be and to do whatever it took to win people to Jesus Christ. Jesus had taught, recorded in Mark's gospel, chapter 10, whoever wants to be first must be what? Slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be saved, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He says in verse 20, Paul, to the Jews, I became like a Jew. In other words, he would be as Jewish as necessary when working with Jews. As a believer in Jesus Christ, he, he was no longer bound to the ceremonies, to the rituals and traditions of Judaism. Following or not following any of those things had no effect on his spiritual life. But if following them would open a door for his witnessing to the Jews, he would gladly accommodate what once had been legal restraints now became love restraints. Why? To win as many as possible. Because Jews were under the law, Paul would himself act as one under the law. He didn't believe or teach or give the least suggestion that following the law was of any spiritual benefit. It could not lead to or keep one saved, but it was a way of what? Opening doors to work among the Jews. Verse 21, to those not having the law, who were they? The Gentiles. He was willing to live like a Gentile when he worked among the Gentiles. He identified as closely as possible with Gentile customs. He ate what they ate, went where they went, dressed as they dressed. Why? To win 
as many as possible. As believers, we are not outside the law of God, but under, as Paul says, Christ's law. What does that mean? Back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And then after that, he cites some examples. You have heard it said, but I tell you. You have heard it said, but I tell you. Christ's law was much more exacting, required much more than the Mosaic law. In fact, he describes his law as the law of love in Matthew's gospel, chapter 22. Two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, in those two commands are contained all the law and the prophets. The law of love. We're under Christ's law. Then in verse 22 of our passage, Paul says, to the weak. Who are the weak? Again, you go back to chapter 8, verses 9 through 12. Those with a weak conscience. Those who are immature believers. To those, Paul would accommodate himself also. And in summary, verse 22 Paul says, he became all things to all men. Why? So that by all possible means, I may save some. He would not compromise the gospel. He would not compromise the truth of God's word. But he would gladly restrict his Christian liberty in the effort to not being a stumbling block. He was able to come alongside anyone. He made the effort to identify with all. Sometimes, I'm afraid, we can never see anything but our own point of view. And if we never attempt to understand the mind and the the heart of others, we'll never be successful in winning some. We're not out to win an argument we're out to win a soul. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter tells us, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. If a person stumbles over God's word. If a person stumbles, stumbles over the truth or biblical doctrine, that's his or her problem. That person, in effect, is stumbling over God. But if a person stumbles by our unnecessary behavior or practices or selfishness, no matter how good and acceptable those practices may be in and of themselves, that person's problem becomes our problem. Paul's life centered in living and preaching the gospel. His life was the gospel. And he set aside anything that would hinder its power and its effectiveness. He wanted everyone to share in the benefits and the blessings of the gospel. And now from verses 24 through 27. Read these passages with me. Do you not know that in a race, all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the game goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. What is it that's required if we choose, as did Paul, to deny ourselves, to deny 
our rights. What's required? I submit to you, self-control, discipline. Sin still lives in us, in our fallen nature. And it still wants to reign. Paul again writes in Romans chapter 12, do not let sin reign any longer in your mortal body, that you should obey its evil desires. You see, sin still wants to reign. There is a battle, there's a battle against the flesh. Sin in us resents, and it resists when we set out to deny ourselves. It's one thing to acknowledge the principle of living by love. But it's another thing to actually do it. There were two great athletic festivals or competitions in ancient Greece. The Olympic Games held in Athens and the Isthmian Games held in Corinth. So the Corinthians would be very, very familiar with the metaphors that Paul would use. So he talks about the race. He talks about a boxing or fighting metaphor. Contestants in those games had to be proven by rigorous, rigorous training for months and months and months. The race, as he describes it, was always the main attraction in these games. That is how, in fact, the writer to the Hebrews describes the Christian life. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. He says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, you can imagine in the amphitheaters and the, and the arenas in which the, the Greeks would compete, either in Athens or in Corinth, there were many, many, many thousands of witnesses watching these games. So the writer to the Hebrews picks up on that same theme. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame or literally disregarding its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Paul tells us in verses 24 and 25, all run, but only one gets the prize. Everyone who competes trains and they train hard, but only one wins in those games. The great difference between those races and the Christian race is that every Christian who will pay the price of training can also win. We don't compete against each other. We do, however, fight against physical and spiritual hindrances, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We each run our own race, and we can all be winners in winning souls to Christ. But we must run in such a way as to win, as to get the prize by setting aside anything that might hinder the reception of the gospel. Holding on to our freedoms, holding on to our rights is a sure way to lose in the race of winning souls. We run to gain a crown that will last but it requires discipline. It requires self-control. In fact, I think you'll agree with me, anything and everything worth doing requires discipline and self-control. An athlete who expects to excel voluntarily disciplines him or herself. Sleep, diet, exercise are not determined by his or her rights or by feelings but by the requirements of training. The athlete's 
disciplined self-control, sadly, is a rebuke of half-hearted, out-of-shape Christians who do almost nothing to prepare themselves to witness to the lost and consequently seldom do. Here's a, metaphor, a second metaphor, a boxing fighting image. He isn't shadow boxing. He says, like a man beating the air, but he's beating what? His body to make it his slave. Most people, including many Christians, are slaves to their bodies. Their bodies decide what, when, and how much to eat, when to sleep, when to get up, when to exercise or not. An athlete can't allow that. An athlete follows training rules, does not follow his or her body, doesn't follow running when the body would rather not run, eating a balanced meal, double cheeseburger, large order of fries, and a chocolate shake. Mm. An athlete goes to bed when wanting to stay up. An athlete gets up early to train rather than staying in bed. An athlete leads his or her body. He does not follow it. It is his slave, not the other way around. How is your training? We're all, we've all started our training probably with a measure of enthusiasm and devotion. But some may have tired of the effort and have begun to break training. Before long, they disqualify themselves from being effective witnesses. The flesh and the world, everyday life, personal interests, and often simple laziness hinder spiritual growth and preparation for service. Even good things can interfere with the best. Fulfillment of freedoms can interfere with fulfillment of love. Following our own ways can keep others from knowing the way. And souls are won by those who are prepared to be used when the Holy Spirit chooses to use them. As Christians, we have freedom in Christ. We have many, many rights, but for the sake of the gospel, we don't insist on those rights. We live in a day right now when many, many people, even Christians, are insisting on their rights. And they can become easily a stumbling block to the gospel. We must be careful and prayerful about how we live in times of difficulty like this. Church, God means for us to trust him, no matter the circumstance, and be putting the kingdom of God first in our life, and that we see other people as needing good news in their life, and that not be a stumbling block to them whatsoever. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your great gift of salvation. We thank you that you've set us free, set us free from the power of sin and death and hell. You set us free to have abundant lives. But those lives are, are meant to be lived not in, only in our own service, but in service to you. You've removed a lot of these things, Lord, from our life, that we are free. For that, we thank you. Help us, O oh God, to be mindful, to use our freedom, again, not for our own benefit, but for the benefit of those around us. Lord, that we might freely communicate your good news. Keep us mindful that we're in training as athletes. And Lord, that we dictate to our own bodies. They do not dictate to us. We thank you again for this good news. We thank you for your spirit who lives in us. We thank you even for the difficulties and the trials that we face today. But we know, Father, you are at work in the midst of all these things to refine us and to make us more like you. 
We love you today. We give you all the praise. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name because you said we could. Amen? Amen. Let's take a few moments now to specifically remember Jesus through communion. Jesus gave us the Lord's table as a time of remembrance to remember him for our freedom is only possible because of what he has done for us. Hopefully you have some elements available. The bread you know, you know, he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Everything that he was, his entire being, enveloped in his body, he gave for us. Jesus held back absolutely nothing. And he said, whenever we do this, we proclaim his death until he comes again. When we eat this bread, we remember him. Eat the bread. cup he described as the cup of the new covenant in his blood a new deal that gives us true freedom it's by his blood that we are justified we don't have to justify ourselves anymore he has justified us he's made us right with god he's given us a new nature that is right with god And again, he said, as often as you should drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. We remember him and what he's done until he comes again. Church, drink the cup. Amen? Amen. If you're viewing this with a family member or friends, I encourage you to pronounce a blessing on them in the name of Jesus. We look forward to meeting again soon. Until that time, I love you. God bless you. Have a blessed week. Bye. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.